Welcome to the morning community of Northridge Vineyard. Our deepest desire is that you will encounter Jesus as you listen in to our morning gathering. If you'd like to find out more about us, check out our website, northridge.org.au forward slash mornings. Um, I want to introduce you to this lady here. This is actually my nana. Um, can you see the family resemblance? Maybe. She looks a lot, lot, a lot more like my sister at that age. Um, but my nana passed away last year at the ripe old age of 101. Yeah, so she's just, she's awesome. We, I just, I love my nana. Um, she's so quirky. But um, when we realized that we didn't have nana for a lot longer, the way that we related to her, it really changed. We realized that at 101 years old, um, this lady had so many incredible stories. She had lived so much through so much um, of our, our recent history, and she had some amazing stories to share. And so um, Jen and I would go around, we'd pour a glass of wine, and we'd just ask questions. And she, did, she wanted to just hear how we're going. Like, she didn't really care, but we just wanted to hear her stories. And, you know, in quite a beautiful way, um, the timing changed the way that we behaved. We realized we didn't have long left. And so we wanted to make the absolute most of the time that we had left. And so what we'll realize is we're going through this book of 1 Peter, um, and it, it, when you read through the scripture in, in chapter 1, which we're going to read in a moment, and chapter 4, um, this book is it's kind of bookended by the sense of living in the last days. You know, as Peter's writing this book to us, he wants to make really clear um, what Jesus said to him, that we don't know the time, the place, the date, that Jesus is going to come back. And we need to live in accordance with that fact, that Jesus could come back at any moment. And so that's, that's kind of the context that um, we're bringing this series with, and that's the context that I'm really speaking from, from for this talk. So this morning, um, Rob and Bon have given me the, um, the simple task of going through one and a half chapters of this book, uh, which you could probably do a whole series on just these, these verses. Um, so thanks, guys. Um, Rob's just nodding and smiling. <laughs> uh, but I want to, before we launch into the passage, I actually want to give away the, the ending, the big ending that I've got at the end, because um, I don't want us to miss this. I think this message is actually really important. And the message this morning is that Christianity, our faith, faith in Jesus is not a set of principles that you have to believe in order to have a relationship. And whether you believe that Consciously, or whether you believe that subconsciously, I think that's a lie that the church has bought into for a long time. It's not a set of principles, although there are principles um, that you have to believe in order to have a relationship, although we do have a relationship. When you zoom all the way out, I believe that this, this journey of doing life with Jesus is an invitation into a story. It's an invitation into the greatest story that has ever been told. You are invited into the story that started at the creation of the world and finishes when Jesus comes back and establishes God's throne on earth forever and ever. And that is the story that we're a part of. That's the faith that we belong to. And that's so much more exciting than just believing in a set of principles. So that's the ending. So you can... No, don't switch off now. That would be bad. But... Um, we're going to go. We're actually going to go through all of this, uh, all of this passage. I'm going to, I'm going to deal with the first two verses on their own, and then we're going to just push on through the whole thing, um, which I kind of actually love because when the early church would have been receiving this letter, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have got the text and then gone through and done word studies and and picked apart sentences. They, it would have been read aloud, and so the message that many of the early uh, the the members of so 
let's dive in. So we're just going to do the first two verses first. Um, so if you've got your Bible handy, feel free to pull it out, switch it on, however you like to um, engage with the Bible. I'm not putting it up on the screen, so you have to look on yourself. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, I did practice that, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, if you have read a lot of the New Testament or if you've been around in church for a little while, um, you will probably notice that most letters that are in the New Testament start with this kind of greeting. And what, what I think we tend to do is we tend to say, okay, well, let's just sort of skip over that bit. We know who wrote the book because it's the title of the book, usually. Um, and and we'll, we'll skip past and we'll get to the, you know, we'll get to the theology. But I want to suggest that's probably an unhelpful practice. And the reason is this. Let me illustrate it. Jen and I uh, belong to the category of hipster millennials that believe that someone else's words, not mine. Um, Yeah, Christine's laughing. It was her. (laughs) Um, We belong to this category of hipster millennials that believe that music genuinely sounds better on vinyl. So we have a vinyl player. Um, We've got quite a healthy record collection. Um, Most of our hi-fi gear is a little bit vintage, and we just love putting on the record. Most of the vinyls we have are actually music that was released since the advent of the CD, but that's a different story. Um, But there's a little switch that we have on our vinyl player, and the switch has two settings. One is 33, and one is 45. And that switch... Uh, determines how quickly the vinyl player turns and therefore the speed. And so you have to match the speed with the record. Are you guys tracking with me? Some of you haven't had to flip one of those switches in a long time. Um, but we have, this, we have this switch. Now, if you get a 33 RPM record and you put, a, uh, and you put it onto a record player at 45, it's going to sound weird, isn't it? it doesn't, have you ever done that? It does, yes, exactly. Almost everyone's nodding. Um, I don't own any 45 records, so I've never had that problem. But um, you you flip this switch, and it sounds weird. Now, you could quite happily argue that the record player is doing its job. It's It's faithfully conveying the information that is contained on the record. But it's not what the artist intended you to hear, is it? And I think these, these little introductions, they're actually really important because like, a, like the speed switch on a record player, they help us calibrate our expectations so that we know who wrote the letter, we know why they were writing it, and we know who they were writing it to. So we're going to just, just briefly go through that information now. So first of all, we know that the author's Peter. That's pretty obvious up front. But the significance of that, I I want to touch on the significance briefly. The first thing that's important to realize is that Peter is not Paul. Why Why is that so profound? If you have been around church for a long time, in particular, I'm addressing this to you. If you've been reading the Bible for a long time, then this is for you. We get so used to reading New Testament letters that are from Paul that I think we've actually learned to just read Paul. And, you know, when, when you read Paul, you're reading the writing of one of the top theologians of his day. He was an absolutely brilliant academic mind. When you read the writing of Peter, you're reading the writing of a fisherman. 
Their writing style is so radically different, but when they're translated by the same people, you can miss that. And so, Paul, so Peter does interesting things, like he'll say some kind of radical statement that just makes you go, what? What is that? And then if you take that verse on its own, you can get into all sorts of theological trouble. But when you, uh, when you realize that this is Peter, you read on, you, he kind of explains it a little bit. But the second thing I think is important to point out about Peter um, is despite the fact that he was a fisherman, his writing is incredibly, incredibly important to us because he was with Jesus. And he wasn't, just, he wasn't just one of Jesus' followers. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. This is the guy who Jesus said, you are the rock on which I will build my church. And so when the original audience are getting these, um, getting these letters coming from Peter, they're saying, okay, we really need to listen to this guy. And so in the same way, I think it's so important for us to really listen to what Peter has to say. So that's who wrote it. Second question uh, that's good to consider when you approach any passage of Scripture is who is this written to? Well, we get this list of places, and I think it's very easy, um, given we live in the 21st century, most of these places don't exist in the same format anymore, to just kind of skip on past that. But I think in this case, it's actually really helpful to consider where they're from. Now, that's a little bit on the um, purple side. Uh, <laughs> it's a little bit on the small side. So let me just point out the key things. So... Southeast, um, you might be able to just see there, um, is Jerusalem. It's in purple. So that's, that's kind of down in one corner. Um, top left corner, northwest, we've got Rome. So that's sort of like the epicenter of the ancient world. Um, and then you have, all, all of, if you look carefully, I mean, if you look really carefully, if you brought a telescope, you'll see that um, all the places that uh, Peter's writing to, Bithynia, it's just at the bottom of the Black Sea there. Bithynia, um, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Phrygia, the places that he's, the people that he's writing to, they're not in the epicenter of either the Jewish or the Roman world. They're kind of provincial, um, sort of backwater churches, in, uh, in a sense. And the thing that's really, there's two things that are helpful to draw out of that. Firstly, he's writing to more than one place, so he's not addressing a specific church with specific issues, which is what you find if you read, say, Ephesians or One Corinthians. He's actually. It's kind of like a circular letter that has general encouragement for all of these churches. But the second thing, and this is really important for when we're reading through the passage, we need to realize that these places don't have Jewish heritage. The vast majority of people who are hearing this letter read out loud were people who had no Jewish background. Um, we would call them Gentiles. And that's going to become really important. I'll explain that when we get there. Um, but the final thing that's really good to know is that um, as you read through the passage, you get this sense that these churches were undergoing a lot of persecution. And it kind of makes sense because if you're in the Roman Empire and you're a well-to-do person and your God was crucified on a cross, that's a matter of shame. That's a really big deal. And so a lot of these churches were experiencing persecution. So Peter's real purpose of writing was an encouragement. And so that's what he's trying to do. So now, we're not going to spend that long in every two verses of this passage. We finish at 12, right? Um, yeah, people are doing the times in the head. Oh, wait, no, I'm not going to speak for an hour and a half. Um, so let's, let's get into the actual passage itself. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read the first kind of big chunk of it, quickly pause so that we're all up to speed, and then I'm going to finish it off. So if you've got your Bible there, we're starting from verse 3. It says in NIV... 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through the faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, for though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes through the, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So quick pause just to make sure we're all up to speed. There's quite a lot of theological language in there. So there's three key things that have just happened in that passage. The first thing, as I mentioned right at the start, is Paul's trying... Uh, Paul? Peter? That's evidence. Um, Peter's, Peter's trying to communicate to them that, the, that this, this inheritance that they have, he's trying to rem, remind these churches of the goal to which they're pressing on. These churches in, in experiencing all of this suffering, all of this persecution, he's saying, Jesus Christ paid a huge price so that you could have this glorious inheritance that is waiting for you. So he's giving them that, this sense of, we're living in the last days, don't lose hope. Then he goes on to remind them that the suffering that they're experiencing has a purpose. And then finally, he reminds them of the Old Testament prophets, which they'd be beginning to learn about. And he says, all of, all of the Old Testament, all of these prophets, they all point to Jesus. This, this, this good news that you have received, all of history has been waiting for that revelation and you guys get to live in it. What an honor. What a joy. So that's where we're up to at this point. So let's continue on, starting from verse 13. And we're going to push on all the way to 2.10. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. 
Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that when you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what just happened in that passage? I think... Uh, quite a sensible and a logical way to sum up what Peter's trying to say here would be this. First of all, he reminds these Gentile Christians of the extraordinary price that Jesus paid and the wonderful reward they have waiting in heaven. As a result of that, that wonderful price that Jesus paid, there is a mandate to live our lives in a way that is in accordance with that. The NIV uses the subtitle, it says, Be Holy, and sort of sums up that second part as a, as a command to holiness. And then finally, there's all this imagery about um, stones and living stones, and it's a bit strange, but he kind of brings it home in the end, and he says, as you, as you live in accordance with the price that Jesus paid, God will form you into a holy nation and a holy people. Now, that may well be quite a good interpretation. I I certainly don't think that interpretation of this passage is wrong. Um, And in fact, there's some beautiful truth that's contained within that. But I want to suggest there's actually an undercurrent that's happening throughout this whole section that it's really, really easy for us to miss. Partly because of the way that the subtitles are put together. Not that that I'm saying they're wrong. Um, But there's a thread that runs through this whole passage, and I think it's really easy to miss that. Now, remember when I said it was really important that Peter's writing to Gentiles. Did you notice, maybe, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, did you notice that there was a whole lot of Old Testament imagery happening throughout this passage? So why is Peter writing to Gentiles and using all of this Old Testament language? It doesn't quite line up, does it? It doesn't fully make sense. I'm not going to go through all of these in detail, But I've mapped out all of the key Old Testament images that are in this passage. So, for example, in verse 13, um, the way the KJV translates this, I absolutely love. It says, 
gird the loins of your mind, which it turns out the exact same wording is used in Exodus 12:11 when God is describing the Passover feast. Um, there's a reference in 15 and 16, be holy for I am holy. And that's a command that God gives the Israelites in the desert in the book of Leviticus. Um, there's all this Passover imagery used in 17 to 21 about Jesus being the ultimate Passover lamb. Um, 22 to 25, it, it effectively talks about um, the, the, this, this Gentile church being a new covenant people. Um, the, this, this stone imagery is meant to remind them of the temple in Jerusalem and that through the Spirit, God is building them, with Christ as the cornerstone, is building them into the new temple of God's presence. And finally, I love, I'm actually going to read this again because it's kind of like Peter gets to the end and he's like, how many more images can I squeeze into these two verses of Scripture? He says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know, if you were reading this letter from Jerusalem, if you were a Pharisee, for example, this would be offensive. This would be so, so offensive in, in, in the most unbelievable way. For Peter, the head of the church, to be writing to Gentiles and saying, you guys are a royal priesthood. You guys are a holy nation. It's, it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. But you know what I think Peter's trying to do here? I think Peter is trying to say this, this incredible story that we read about in the Scriptures, this creation narrative that we have, this uh, the, the, the rich history of God coming back to humanity through the, Israel, through the Jewish people, the prophets, all of that, you're now a part of that story. Now, I, I don't think Peter's trying to make an appeal to behavior necessarily here. He's trying to make an appeal to identity. He's trying to communicate um, to all of these churches in this whole region this incredible story that started at creation and finishes when Jesus comes back. You're a part of that story now. It's absolutely incredible. How is it that I have been able to present two fundamentally different takes on this passage to you? What's going on here? Let me illustrate it to you like this. This line is the Bible. It's, it's got the beginning at creation, and you know, we, re, we know that the Bible is an ongoing story, but that's the Bible as we have it. The way that we have tended for probably the last 300 years to look at the Bible is, is in what I, you could call a systematic way. So we like to think, okay, I want to understand sin, so let's find... Uh, let's find all the passages in the scripture that talk about sin, and then let's build a theology of sin based on that. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If you want to understand the Holy Spirit, let's find all of the passages in the Bible that talk about the Holy Spirit, um, work out what they have in common, and let's build a theology around that. Now, this has been an absolutely incredible and revolutionary way to the Bible, uh, to, way to read the Bible, and what we have gained from this systematic approach to understanding our faith has been invaluable. 
So I'm definitely, definitely, definitely not trying to say that systematic theology is a bad thing. But what I am trying to say is that it's incomplete. If we only read the Bible in a systematic way, then we can miss some of the incredibly profound stuff that God is trying to communicate to us. You know, I think often we we read the Bible as if it's a theology textbook, and we get confused when it doesn't communicate all of these different topics clearly. But we have to come back to this fundamental understanding that at the end of the day, the Bible isn't a theology textbook. The Bible is a story. It's the story not of God's pursuit of, of man's pursuit of God. It's the story of God's pursuit of man. And perhaps uh, a helpful complementary way to read the Bible uh, is this. Narrative theology. Narrative theology acknowledges that there's all of these distinct topics of understanding within the Bible, but what the Bible does is weave this incredible story through all of those different things. And I believe that when we read the Bible in a narrative way, it helps us to get back to what the authors were really trying to um, to say to us. It helps us to flip the, uh, the record player to the right switch and really get at the original meaning from the authors. So this is great, this framework. How does that actually change the way that I live? What's the real-world significance of reading the Bible in this, this slightly different way? Well, of course, being considering I'm speaking on it, I think that uh, the significance is quite profound. But let me illustrate why. Firstly, reading the Bible from a narrative versus a systematic perspective, it actually fundamentally changes the way you view certain things. So one question that you might rightly ask as you read through the New Testament is, well, now that we have Jesus and now that we have grace, who am I? Am I I fundamentally a failure who's only fixed by grace? Or am I a new creation sharing in the image of Christ? Now, you could read through um, the New Testament, and you could probably make a strong biblical case for both of those things. But if you think logically, they can't both be true at the same time. Whereas if you have a narrative perspective, you consider the order of those things. You realize, without God, we were in a pretty sticky situation. But now that we have God, we are being formed into the likeness of Christ through His grace and through His Holy Spirit. You know, you take these seemingly contradictory things in Scripture and suddenly they make sense when you put them into a narrative framework. Another thing that uh, this really helps us to unpack is directly relevant to the passage we've just read, which is how we're supposed to behave as Christians. You see, if God set us free, like fully set us free from the law due to um, uh, because of what Jesus did, if we're free, then why does our behavior matter? You know, are we supposed to... um, you know, be really morally uh, incredible people, or aren't we? Well, when you take a narrative approach, you realize, yes, Jesus set us free from the law, but we want to live lives that respond to that. We, we, we want to live every moment of our lives remembering what came before. You see how this narrative approach, it just, un- it just unlocks so much of the Bible when you read it the way it was meant to be read. But the other thing that's absolutely mission critical to everything we do as Christians is that I believe that this theology, narrative theology, it helps us to understand what our faith actually is. 
If I told you that Christianity is not a religion, it's not a set of rules that you have to follow in order to, uh, in order to earn your salvation, I, think, I, I would say that most people in the room would pretty well agree with me, and we have the Reformation to thank for that. So thank you, Reformation. Um, but I believe that there is uh, an equal but alternate lie that has crept into our thinking. I think, whether, whether consciously or subconsciously, I think many of us live our Christian lives believing that our faith essentially is a set of principles or a set of doctrines that we have to believe. And when we believe the right ones, then we're allowed to have a relationship with Jesus. Let's just say I want to have a friendship with Rob. There are two ways that I could go about beginning that friendship. The first thing is I could find Rob's Facebook account and um, I could read all about him. Um, I could talk to Eric and Lisa. You guys know Rob pretty well. I could ask lots of questions about Rob. And then I could, you know, I could, I could come to Rob one Sunday and I could say, hey, mate, how's, how are the kids? How's this thing? And, and he'd be like, who are you? If he's never met me before, even if I know a lot about him, we don't have a relationship. The way that we create relationship is through shared experience. The way that we create relationship is through story. And I believe that our faith, our Christian belief in the, the wonderful, wonderful Jesus is not a set of principles that we have to believe in order to have a relationship. I think you zoom out all the way and you realize that our Christian faith, which is exactly what Peter is saying to these churches here, our Christian faith is being grafted into a story and it's the greatest story that has ever been told. And that, fun, that, that shift in perspective fundamentally changes the way we live. We're not trying to get our thinking right all the time. It's a great exercise. But when we realize that it's a story and that you're part of a story, that changes everything. It's so empowering. We believe that God is making all things new, that he is bringing a new kingdom where there's no more tears, where there is no more death, where there is no more pain and sorrow. And if we believe we're part of that story, then our mandate is to begin to bring that kingdom now. That's what we're here for. Not only do we have a restored relationship with God, but in Christ we have a new identity. He's changed who we are. And not only do we have a new relationship and a new identity, but we have a new purpose. We have a new destiny given to us through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, when we, when we see our faith as this narrative, as this story that God has invited into, us into, it is so much more exciting than just coming to church and getting your doctrine right. It is so much more empowering when you realize that the Spirit of God himself is inside you and wanting to bring this new kingdom now. It's so much more exciting. It's so much more fun. Don't you want to live a faith like that? Don't you want to live your faith like that? Let's stand. I finished early. Yes. That doesn't happen very often. What I would love to do now, um, like I said, I, this doesn't happen very often that I have time left at the end. Uh, so what I would love to do is I would love to see what God wants to do because um, his plans are generally um, better than mine. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. Um, we believe in the vineyard that good information is fantastic. Um, when it actually changes the way we live, that's much better. So that's why we do this response time. 
Uh, so I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. We're going to wait in silence for an uncomfortably long amount of time. Uh, and then at some point, I'm, I will rescue us uh, when I have a sense of what God wants to do. Um, and if, if you feel strongly that um, God is, is, is speaking something, then um, come and chat to Rob. He'd love to, um, we'd love to make some space for some, for some prophetic words. So but let's do it. Holy Spirit, come and move now. Come do your thing, Lord.